You're listening to the Screening in Kingston podcast, recorded in Kingston, Ontario, Canada. Welcome back to another episode of Screening in Kingston. Uh, we hope that everybody had a great Thanksgiving weekend, and this is your uh, your first Screening in Kingston back from Thanksgiving, and we have a treat for you today because Taylor may or may not be off on her honeymoon, um, and that means that she's gone, and I brought in a guest host, and if people pay attention to this show, they know exactly what we're doing today because when Taylor goes away, I like to bring in Tyler to talk some Star Trek. Welcome back to the show, Tyler Vance. Oh, thank you so much for having me. What was it that Taylor said after the first episode? When the cat's away, the mice can play. The mice play, yeah. <laughs> Every time she goes, we're like, all right, it's nerd time. Let's exactly. Talk. <laughs> time to st- talk some Star Trek. Yeah, it's going to be a whole Star Trek episode. So for those of you who don't care about Star Trek at all, you're going to have to listen to this because we got an hour of Trek talk coming your way. Um, but I think we've made this episode kind of work in current times and really what always is current times. But basically this episode, we are going to talk to you all about our favorite episodes of Star Trek from any of the series that specifically tackle a social or political issue or whatever language you want to call it. Sometimes it's social, sometimes it's political, whatever you want to call it. They're they're basically social issues being tackled by Star Trek. So Tyler and I have come here with our five episodes that we feel you know tackle it the best and and maybe it's different types of social issues maybe it's not and again it's can be from all the different series of star trek and we'll talk maybe a little bit about those as we introduce it but uh, that's what we're doing today so tyler are you ready to go oh i'm so excited uh there's so many great episodes in star trek that deal with it's like uh, many different issues. And a lot of these issues for me when I was watching these shows when I was younger were my introduction to these kind of like bigger, headier ideas. Absolutely. And, and really the best sci-fi always uses its weird outlandish um, if settings and environments to actually tackle something that we all understand and recognize in our own backyard. Yeah. And I, I, I bring it up on the show all the time. Um, I mean, it's a, it's a bingo card space for a reason. I talk about Star Trek a lot for a reason. And it's because of exactly what you just said. Star Trek, at its best, is using metaphor, allegory, um, citing example, and showing you some, some sort of issue that we face day to day here. But they put it in a context that makes it feel a little bit foreign. And I actually think that helps. It makes me look at situations and go, wait a minute. Why are we treating each other like this? Like it's ridiculous. So I I couldn't agree with you more. I kind of grew up on Star Trek and a lot of these issues that we're about to talk about. This is my first introduction to. So, yeah, I think that I I think you'll agree. Star Trek does it the best for for any sci fi out there. Oh, yeah. It's leaps and bounds against all the other stars, be it Stargate, Star Wars, Starcraft. It's yeah. As they, um, the only one that might do a better job on a purely like sarcastic and really intensely satirical state is Starship Troopers. Um, yeah. But other well, than Star- that... Starship Troopers, again, people didn't get it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it bombed and people didn't understand what it was trying to people say. Look, it's like, why is this guy 
pushing a totalitarian fascist state. Yeah. I'm not just. Like... Yeah. <laughs> no, that's what it, I'm glad you brought up Starship Troopers because it's very true. People just didn't get it. it like, no, <laughs> didn't get it when it came out and it didn't really even get popular. until a lot later. And now people look back at it and go, wow, like this, this was trying to say something. Well, that's all the best satire. Like, what was it? Jonathan Swift who wrote that thing on how like we can improve hunger by eating babies. And it was this, supposed to be this, like, it was this short story kind of like essay. And it was like all exceptionally like satirical and not to yeah. be taken lightly. But then everybody just went, this guy's crazy. He thinks we should be eating babies. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, again, it, it, it's interesting because we talk about Star Trek and kind of the, the thing I was talking about earlier about how Star Trek often does things through metaphor or puts it in a situation that's not exactly the same. Like they might want to talk about race but they do it in a way that's not as poignant. Yep. And sometimes that goes over people's heads, but mm. I don't know. I think Star Trek does a great job, at least for me, it did like as, as a young kid of, of kind of, I almost want to say teaching. I know it's hard sometimes to get our minds over the fact that like a TV show can teach us things, but yep. it taught me from a young age to kind of question why you would treat someone differently. And that's kind of some of the stuff we're going to talk about today. Um, and there's some very specific examples of it, but, but I brought that up on this show so many times that I thought we should probably just talk about this. Like yeah. It's yeah. easier to do that. Yeah. Well, because I remember it came up in our first Star Trek episode. It's come up a few times with Taylor and I'm, I am excited to get into this and kind of really shine a light on how Star Trek did, did good from the 1960s all the way up to the present. Well, maybe yeah. not the exact present, but yeah. So to be clear, Star Trek ended in the year 2005. Yep. When the show Enterprise went off the air. Yeah. And then we had some nice J.J. Um, Abrams movies that were kind yes, of like, yeah. oh, those were fun. They were fun. Um, it's like, it's remember when Star Trek was a thing in our yes. lives? That was yeah. good. Yeah. Those movies were fun. And then it stopped. Yeah. Um, so that's what we're going to focus on today. We're going to keep it positive because we're going to talk about uh, the series that we love and why it kind of works for us. And and again, we hope for those of you who aren't Star Trek fans, you'll listen to this episode and go, you know what? That does sound like a kind of interesting episode. Maybe I'll check it out. Or maybe you might give the series a try because it does do a lot of good. And there's a lot of great things within within Star Trek. And that's what we're going to do. So how this is going to work is we both got five episodes. They can be from any Star Trek series, as we we mentioned, there's been several since the original series. Um, I believe the count was five, um, mm. five series that we will be kind of touching upon today. Um, and I think from our chat, from our pre-show chat, we have at least one episode from every series. Yeah. Which is great. I think that's really good to kind of give people a sense of, of what these different shows do and, and kind of how they each tackle it in their own way. Um, so we've got five episodes each. We'll basically just go back and forth. We'll each name the episode, give a little synopsis, and then talk about what social issue it's tackling and see where the conversation goes. So um, let's, without further ado, let's get started. Uh, Tyler, start things off. Give us, give us one from your list. Okay, so these are in no particular order, um, but I guess maybe a good place to start would be with a very early episode from The Next Generation called mm -hmm. Symbiosis. Okay. So this is season one, episode 22. And uh, season one of TNG was is not its best by a long shot. It took a few seasons for it to really hit its stride. It was a little bit too reverent towards the original series, um, yeah. very campy. 
still trying to figure out what it was going to do with its characters. Riker hadn't grown a beard yet. You know, it was just, it was weird times for everyone yeah. involved. Yeah, the, the, that non-bearded Riker times. Oh, just yeah. strange. Yeah, when we were watching this episode, my wife looked at me, like, oh, he's like a baby. Yeah, it's <laughs> true, yeah. Um, but Symbiosis is like shows kind of what was the best thing about the um, very early TNGs, that they had some really interesting ideas and some cool plot, even if they hadn't figured out exactly what to do with their characters yet. So this episode is actually sees the Enterprise go into this solar system as they often do. And they encounter these two planets that are kind of in this weird symbiotic relationship with each other. The one planet is being ravaged by a plague and the other planet has the means to provide the antidote for this plague. Um, and this plague is like a ridden, is like a society basically in order to pay for the medicine is giving the other planet everything they can possibly afford. They provide them with food, they provide them with technology, they provide them with everything. And as the episode progresses, it, we recognize that actually this supposed cure for the medicine, is like oh, this supposed medicine is like, that is helping this plague, cured the plague 200 years ago. Yeah. And what the people think is a sickness is actually an addiction to this yeah. medication. And the people who are selling it know it. Um, and then it deals with this... I like a lot of Star Trek stuff about the prime directive about our is like whether they should interfere in this weird symbiotic slash parasitic, uh, parasitic relationship or not. And maybe but, we should just quickly explain if you don't mind, Tyler, what the prime directive is just so people know, because it does come up in a lot of episodes. Of course. So the prime directive, as the name would imply, is one of the number one rules that any Starfleet officer must abide by. And is basically for less civilized societies that have yet to develop warp travel and gone out into the greater universe, you can't interfere with them. You don't yeah. provide them with technology. You don't show yourself and make your presence known. You let their natural evolution progress to the point where they can finally come out into the world and greet and, sh and greet us is like basically yeah. in the, in the other solar systems. Yeah. And it's basically, you know, it's basically the, the rule of anti, you know, colonization. Um, you can't just go to a planet and introduce yourself to people who don't have the same technology as you and interfere with the way they're going to develop. And it's interesting because they basically decided soon as you have the ability to travel faster than light, soon as you have warp drive, you will be introduced to someone because you're going to run into them anyway. So that's where they sort of have divvied up the line, regardless of how your civilization is advanced. If you're going to come out into the known universe you're going to run into people anyway. So that's when Starfleet will make their introductions. Yeah. And so in this one, it actually, this episode, it brings up the interesting problems with the Prime Directive when you can see something that's like morally reprehensible. Yeah. Um, these people are exploiting their neighbors. They know that they are no longer sick, but they are taking everything from them and selling them a narcotic effectively. But they are, their Starfleet officers' hands are tied in terms of what they can actually do and uh, but I think more than the prime directive aspect and more than even the drug aspect, it really kind of delves into this idea of like a capitalist mentality of like yeah. where it's like supply and demand mm -hmm. and how it can be completely devoid and separated from morality. Um, and it's really is like it's interesting to see as the episode progresses how the people who are selling this supposed cure 
seem to have no remorse for what they're no. doing. And no, it's them, it's them, they're getting, you know, they get what they need and they're giving something that, that the other people need. You know, that's the way they see it. Yeah. And they just say, like, who wouldn't take advantage of this opportunity? Of course. It's and, so ingrained in their culture. Yeah. Yeah. And you can see that it shows up in all forms of media, even in something as uh, quaint as the Lorax um, with the the good old Dr. Seuss book with the mm-hmm. Wunkler who's eating up all the trees. And his response to himself when he says, maybe I shouldn't be doing this is, well, if I didn't, somebody else would. Right. Yeah. And that's the thing. It's it's it puts the enterprise which which is the starship dealing with this situation usually as the enterprise always dealing with something like this in a situation where what do we do yep. you know the, these societies are ingrained and i like prime directive episodes that do show the different side of it where it's like you this non-interference thing can also can also bite you in a way because you can interfere even though you see something that you think or perceive to be immoral but that also brings up an interesting side of it tyler that it will come up in a couple of my episodes is the idea of what humans find moral in this time frame is often what is projected onto alien species and how sometimes that's not a fair thing to do it's not always fair to bring your morals to someone else's culture yeah and there's a part at the end of this episode where uh, Captain Picard, who is always a staunch believer in the Prime Directive, and mm-hmm. Beverly Crusher, who is the ship's doctor, who is the uh, the resident bleeding heart of the group, have yeah. this kind of argument in the turbo lift about the decisions that they've made. And Picard is saying, like, you know, every is like every time throughout history when a more advanced civilization interacts with a less civilized one, it no matter how good your intentions are. It always ends badly. Yeah. And so it's like there was only really one choice to make. And Beverly says, I just hope it was the right one. And like that's kind of the cool thing about Star Trek that it makes it a choice and you're left kind of sitting there going, Was it the right call? I, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. No, and I, I love that uncertainty because you as a audience member of of watching this and just sort of sitting back and kind of observing your also looking at both sides of it being like they both have a really good point mm-hmm. and that's i think yeah definitely when star trek said it's best yeah that's a great episode a really a nice gem from yeah an early start yeah uh, <laughs> to the earliest track yeah it's like a, a diamond in the rough as it were yeah um so so i'll give i'll give my first one and actually i, I might jump off this theme now that we've explained the prime directive um, and, and give an episode. Now I'm going to stay away from my Star Trek, the next generation ones, just in case you've got them. <laughs> we'll, <laughs> we'll talk about them at the same time, but I, I'm going to give you an, um, an episode from the TV series enterprise. Mm. Now I think you aren't as familiar with this series, Tyler, as, as the others. That's correct. I, I watched the open, like the first, the pilot, like way back when it came out and I said like, oh, this is great. I should watch more of this. And then it just kind of like slipped through my fingers like so many other great media did. Yeah. And, uh, and that's, that's, yeah, that's absolutely fair. Um, so just to give you and, and our audience a quick overview, Enterprise was the last uh, series uh, of Star Trek that debuted in the early 2000s after Star Trek Voyager ended. It is actually set well in the past of even the original series. So I think it's about 100 years or so, 150 years in the past 
of Captain Kirk. So this takes place just as uh, Earth and Starfleet. There's no Federation, so there's no alliance of planets. Um, there's just Earth and Starfleet, which is Earth's basically, you know, exploration arm is, they call it Starfleet. Um, they are, have a partnership with the Vulcans, uh, who basically made first contact with them when they saw that, um, humanity broke the warp barrier. Um, and they're, they're off on their own. This is the first ship to travel. They, they basically say it's the first warp five engine. So that's fast enough to actually get out into the open space um, and and do some exploring. So this is all about that ship called Enterprise, captained um, by a guy by the name of Jonathan Archer, whose father worked on the engines. So there's sort of that connection there. But basically, this series is following um, a Starfleet ship before there's the Federation. So there is no prime directive, but this episode is which is called Cogenitor, um, does hint at a future formation of such a uh, directive. So Cogenitor is an episode in the second season of Enterprise where the basically what has happened in the first season and a half of Enterprise is they, they're going out there like bright-eyed and excited. Yay, we're exploring space. And every alien they introduce themselves to, they're like, this is where you can find Earth. And here's a list of our fears. Like they just trust everybody. <laughs> um, and weaknesses. Yes, <laughs> everyone. Yeah, then here's a list of Keys our Keys to the house. Yeah, yeah. Here's, you know, here's, you know, our school schedule. Here's everything. Like they're just, they're so open and trusting that in the first season, they run into villain after villain after villain after hostile species after hostile species. So by the second season, they've had enough um, and they're a little bit more cautious. They finally in this episode meet a ship that's exactly like them. An alien species is also exploring space. They have a little bit more advanced technology than the Enterprise does, but they meet a friendly face and it's all great. So this episode all takes place with the two ships in front of this star. They're trying, I think it's like a proto star, like one that's kind of forming and they're trying to like do scientific research around it. But this ship is so much more advanced, they help the Enterprise. So the two ships get together. They basically uh, help each other and start exploring and, and form bonds and friendships. And every crew member gets a little side mission or side episode plot with each crew member that they meet. So the one that is the focus of the episode is the chief engineer. His name is Charles Tucker III. So Trip is his nickname. So we'll just mm -hmm. call him Trip. Uh, Trip meets the engineer from the other ship who happens to be Mary. Um, this is kind of something that's new, uh, a new concept for for Trip because the Enterprise is more like a, it's basically like a submarine in space. Yeah. yeah, there's no family. There's you know you don't not like the. Enterprise where there's thousands of people on it. This is 82 people on it. Um, it's a very small ship. So he's fascinated by this. And by through conversation, they learn that they're trying to have a baby. So this engineer and his wife want to have a baby. And in their society, there are three biological sexes. So as opposed to uh, humanity, and this is, again, this episode does not get into gender identity at all. I actually have an episode that talks about that later. But mm -hmm. um, it's basically the biological sexes that they're talking about because biologically this species can only reproduce when an enzyme by the third sex is introduced at the right time. So in order to have a baby, this husband and wife had to apply to their government to receive what's called a cogenitor. And that's, that's basically its name. It has no other name other than that. It has no gender sort of um, identity or there's no he, she, um, 
attached. It's just basically an it, according to them. And it has no name because they feel that cogenitors are a lesser sort of form and its only purpose for existence is to help this reproduction happen. So you can imagine that Trip, being a human being in this kind of evolved society, thinks this is atrocious. He soon finds out that they don't even teach cogenitors to read. They have no name or identity. They are not allowed to participate in society in the same way. They're essentially kept somewhere on the home planet and only assigned to couples when they require that enzyme to reproduce. Um, so to make a, a long episode short, he teaches the cogenitor to read, gives the cogenitor a name, and introduces the cogenitor to the wide world of the universe. They sneak around on both ships. Um, he kind of shows the cogenitor around, and they start to form a bond and a friendship, and things go wrong real fast. And what I like about this episode is in a similar vein to yours, Tyler, the end of the episode, again, we're going to have to spoil ends of episodes um, <laughs> just because we have to in order to talk about this. Um, at the end of the episode, um, the cogenitor requests to stay on board the Enterprise and requests asylum. Mm -hmm. At this exact time, the two captains of the ship were out bonding together on a, um, on a little science vessel closer to the protostar so they, they weren't even on board when all this was happening so by the time the captain returns he returns to a ship where trip is basically on the enterprise with his cogenitor who's refusing to leave mm. so now the captain's in a position where he has to decide what to do and the argument that him and trip have is one of my favorite written scenes in star trek enterprise history where they go back and forth talking about how it's not right Trip saying it's not right for them to treat someone like they're a lesser being than them, that just based upon, basically based upon their, their, their gender, their, you know, and the captain says, well, you can't enforce human ideals onto another culture. We don't understand this culture. We don't understand anything. You're, you know, we're, we're in this situation where we're trying to make friends and you're judging them based upon your ideals. And they go back and forth and back and forth. Basically, the captain decides to give the cogenitor back and they find out later that the cogenitor uh, took their own life. Mm -hmm. So the episode ends with now there will be a child that is not born and this cogenitor has lost their life because they didn't want to live um, knowing that there's a great wide universe out there and that they can read and have a name, um, which they didn't realize before. And the episode kind of ends on these two people arguing, the captain and the, and the engineer basically arguing, saying, we don't know what the right decision was here, but interfering in this culture has now cost two lives. Um, so it, again, it brings you into this situation of like, well, who's right in this situation and how would, would we have handled it differently? Um, and I, I think it's one of the better episodes of Enterprise. Well, yeah, that's very interesting, especially is like as you uh, as you set it up as like a primordial episode for the prime directive of kind of like recognizing the reasons why for, like future captains aren't making these same decisions and like and are trying to avoid interference because of the damage you can cause even when you're trying to be in the right. Yeah, yeah. even when you're trying to do something that you feel is correct and you are maybe even morally or on the right side of things, but the damage you can cause by just blindly acting is clear. And the interesting thing about this episode, as kind of a side note, the uh, the Enterprise has an alien doctor on board. It's one of the only other species they, they basically know in, in the universe. And the doctor explains to Trip at several points in time that, that humans are one of the few species who who have 
genders and, and biological sexes in the way that we understand it. A lot of other species works in multiple ways, you know, multiple sexes, multiple genders, multiple gender identities, and we're judging things based upon how we've evolved. So it's interesting. It's interesting to look at another culture saying, well, you know, is it right or wrong what they're doing? But again, what's ingrained in what works for their culture and how do the people feel who are being quote unquote marginalized in Tripp's eyes and the fact that they don't know they're being marginalized, what does that mean? And I don't know if there's a simple answer here. I'm not saying there is. I just find that that's an interesting discussion that they have and it shows why the prime directive ends up being created later. Because right now, and that's what's interesting about enterprise. If you're looking, Tyler, for for a series where you really see a lot of mistakes happen in terms of what the crew does, it's enterprise. Because they just go around, they don't know what they're doing. Yeah. And they're learning and, and they cause a lot of problems and it's quite it's quite well done. Yeah, that is interesting because we're we're so used to seeing the uh is like the crews in question of being kind of like these beacons of virtue and they're like almost bringing virtue to these other places where people are still suffering with the problems that we're suffering with now and then the crew will say like can you believe they're still like that and then like look pointedly at the camera like can you yeah (laughs) yeah. (laughs) and we're kind of like it's like and it works well it's like in all cases it's like but it is kind of a breath of fresh air sometimes to get it when the crew is not all knowing and there is like, and they are the ones actually making mistakes. Yeah. 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 You see the learning process at the beginning and the formation of Starfleet and before the Federation was really a thing. And it, yeah, it's very, it's very intriguing in that sense. So what's your next episode? Well, I think this actually will go well into my next episode. Um, I'm going to go with another TNG episode called force of nature. Um, this comes from season seven, episode nine. So this is near the very end of, um, of TNG. And the reason why I think they connect well is because when we were talking about this idea of the crew making mistakes, um, because it is useful to see the crew pointing out mistakes in others, but because we're always on the crew's side, we can usually see what they're saying. So it's like when they're saying like, look at these people being ridiculous. You're like, I know they're being ridiculous. Isn't that crazy? But meanwhile, in our everyday life, we're all doing or thinking crazy things that are backwards that eventually someday we might break ourselves loose of. Um, And so the force of nature episode from TNG is one of those few episodes where the crew are actually shown that they were in the wrong and they have been in the wrong for many, many years and no one knew it. It's an environmentalism episode pretty much where the crew of the enterprise is accosted by these members of a, what they would say a more primitive race who are, saying to them your warp cores are damaging the fabric of space yeah. and they're like look at we've we've been doing this for a lot longer than you guys have we've been all over the place there's no way that our warp cores are causing any damage and then this kind of these uh this brother and sister duo of scientists from this is like a race actually come forward and they try to pre- present their data and say you see you see what we're seeing they're like well maybe but there's just not enough evidence here really to yeah. as they go through it it's like and then they kind of condescend to them. So then finally the sister of the brother sister duo performs this like suicidal experiment that showcases clearly that their warp cores are causing damage like to the space time. And there's this great moment at the end of the episode when Picard and Jordy are talking. So that's the captain and the engineer. And they're talking about this kind of realization that all these years they've been doing something. They've been going out into space for the love of it, for the love of exploration. And in doing so, they've actually been damaging the very thing that they were seeking to explore and be a part of. And 
it's like this is one of those it's like episodes that could have just been a one-off but it actually does change things it's like they yeah. say okay we can't go faster than warp seven then like in order to go faster than warp seven you have to get um permission, like a, a permission from starfleet yeah. and yeah. that carries on throughout the rest of the series and into the movies is like when yeah. they ask for permissions is like to go into these type of things so it is one of those things where they recognize that they made a mistake. They've been making a mistake for a long time and they take actual efforts to mitigate and improve it. And, and isn't that so refreshing? Oh, isn't it? Because you yeah. look at is like when if <laughs> we have way more evidence for a lot of the environmental issues, be it global warming, pollution, like uh, forest fires, deforesting, it's like the Amazon rainforest, all these sort of things. And people are just kind of like, yeah but money though and yeah. it's like yeah. um it's such like nearsighted it's like um myopic thinking and it's nice to be put in a position where you see these people who are always almost infallible nice like they they made a mistake they admit it and they move forward and try to fix it and yeah. if that isn't star trek i don't know what is yeah and and i think i think the fact that you bring up that they're they're talking to a species that is not as advanced as them mm. is so important because they still, yes, they don't listen at first, but then they regret that they regret not listening because it costs a life. They regret not listening because they're wrong and they start listening to what this group of people are saying. Yeah. And I think that that shows that in this time, humanity has evolved to a point where we can admit we, when we make mistakes, we can admit when we're wrong. And to actually take an action to to do something to fix it, to change it. Yeah. And it's interesting because the reason this like less evolved race, supposedly, um, recognizes that there's a problem is because they're in a portion of a space that's highly affected by this. Just because yeah. of the like this like weird nebula that their planet lives in, it's actually very deeply impacted by these warp fields. And so therefore yeah. they're able to recognize it more. And it's reminiscent of a lot of the islands in the Polynesian areas that are slowly disappearing because of global warming. It's like, yeah. And they recognize way easier than someone maybe in the middle of the United States or in the north of Canada does that there's change. This is obvious. This thing is happening. We're losing our homes immediately. Yeah. Um, there's like Because for us, the changes to global warming are really like minute and slow. And they can kind of be kind of averaged out over time as kind of, oh, yeah, you know, things happen. But for these people, they are seeing the effects day in, day out. It's like, and it's eventually going to cost them their home. That's a great episode. It's a really great episode to bring up. Yeah. It, and it definitely shows. Again, I love episodes that show, put a lens on us and, and show, oh, look, look at how we could do things. Look how things can be better. It's the optimism that I'm missing from whatever it is that's on television now with the name Star Trek. It's yep. the optimism that I think was lost um, that exists in these series. Um, my next episode, I'm going to change, uh, change a little bit the direction here and talk a little bit about um, a, an episode from Star Trek Deep Space Nine mm. called Far Beyond the Stars. So this episode uh, happened in their sixth season um, and so there, again, this, this, uh, series also, uh, went, uh, went seven. So this was the second last season. Um, and it basically takes our captain, Captain Cisco, um, and throws him 
back in time by way of a vision to 1950s America. Mm. So Captain Sisko uh, is black. He is commanding a space station that is near a wormhole. And Deep Space Nine basically takes place with him commanding this station near this wormhole that can send ships to the other side of the galaxy as they basically, the Federation gets to explore new space. Um, the reason why I bring up that he's black is he is sent back through time, through a vision. So he's not actually thrown through time. It's a vision he's having where he takes on the role of a writer in 1950s America for this magazine that um, that writes like fiction stories. So they create stories and every time they put out a magazine, it's a bunch of short stories in it. He's one of the writers and several members of the crew take on roles within this vision as some of the other writers or people in this world. Um, it's important to know that that especially in, in 1950s, but still now and, and apparently always, um, the fact that he's black is a major issue for him. So he writes, but he no one can know um, that he's black. They He writes under a, a pseudo name. And when they do, they do these scenes where they talk about, oh, we got to take pictures of everybody. Him and the female writer always have to be sick or absent when they take pictures because people are basically fooled that they're that they're actually white like the other writers. So this magazine is producing stories and Captain Sisko becomes this character and you see the racial tension and struggle that he goes through um, every step of the way. Every character. So there's several other um, actors and characters on Deep Space Nine who are who are black as well. So you see this comparison between him at work and associating with with all all his his white associates and what he does there and he writes and then him going basically back home to this diner where his girlfriend works um that they've even got a stand-in baseball player where, where Worf plays a, a baseball player who's broken the the barrier and and is and is kind of popular um but they basically show you in a very specific poignant way which is not star trek like the, the racial tensions that exist in our society. And normally they would do this through, as I said, metaphor, allegory, or show us something else somewhere else um, and have humans be kind of looking at it going, this isn't right, but it throws Cisco into a, a place and a time that he's unfamiliar with, not being used to being treated that poorly because it doesn't exist um, for him in his time. And it's a very interesting episode because Star Trek does, as I said, Star Trek doesn't do this that often. Doesn't no. specifically point out race and go like, here, we're going to actually have an episode about, you know, our races. Because for them, the idea of judging someone because of the pigment of their skin or where they grew up on the planet is ridiculous. Um, but this episode does it so perfectly because there's a point to it. And it changes Ben Sisko the remaining season and a half of the series. He starts to remember, and this becomes, this memory becomes a part of him. Kind of like the inner light episode from from Next Generation, mm, yeah. where you know your captain is now changed. Something becomes a part of him for the rest of the time, and he he has this. And there's actually episodes later that hint back at it. He has this part of him that he, that almost was forgotten about how people like him were treated back in the 1950s, and as I said, now as well. So it's a very interesting episode, and I actually recommend it to people who are not Star Trek fans. You'll love this episode because the vast majority of it takes place in the 1950s. Yeah, that's is it. What I really appreciated about Deep Space Nine is that it was, I think, the first series to be completely made after Gene Roddenberry had passed away. Yeah. Um, 
and Gene Roddenberry had like specific rules of things that like Star Trek couldn't be. And um, while I think he had some good ideas behind what it should and shouldn't be, sometimes they were a little limiting. And Deep Space yeah. Nine was at least able to kind of um, explore, branch out, become things that Star Trek had never been before. And so well, episodes we, like that yeah. are very different than you would see from anything else is like that came beforehand, but still yeah. in the spirit and still impotent for what it would be. Yeah, I liked it because it was almost like doing a, um, you know how you, you do like you do a Superman movie and then later everyone's like, oh, you got it. You got to do now a more gritty version of Superman. Yeah. Deep Space Nine was basically that, but performed to perfection. Yeah. Where it took next generation and the ideals of there, but made it gritty made it a little bit more grounded and did explore things like one of Gene Roddenberry's big rules was you can't have inner turmoil and fighting amongst the crew yeah. because humanity and the Federation that it's gone. You're not going to, no one's going to judge each other based upon those things anymore, which is a rule I like, but how deep space nine gets around it is the entire premise of the show is they're trying to help a civilization that was conquered by another civilization. Yeah. So you get tension between the Bajorans and the Federation based on a lot of, of racial reasons, but also because this, this group of people was basically conquered by a group like the Federation. Yeah. So the Federation is there to help, but they feel distrust and hate towards them. And it becomes the, a really interesting part of the show. So yeah, I, I also appreciate Deep Space Nine for those exact same reasons as you Yeah. Did. Well, it's also interesting with Deep Space Nine that, like, you have this issue between the Bajorans and the Federation, but, like, how can the Federation possibly understand where the Bajorans are coming from? If you've lived in, like, an idyllic society for so yeah. long where you haven't had to really worry about oppression or genocide or any of these things, and then you come across these people and you're trying to tell them, like, oh, yeah, sure, we, we understand. It's like, no, you don't. No. You, you don't understand. They're, they're terrorists, right? Like, yeah. even... The Bajorans refer to themselves as terrorists. Yeah, specifically uh, the Maquis, who are the yeah. it's like the actual Bajoran terror cells. Oh, yes, yeah. The Maquis becomes a great storyline, yeah. um, really, for, for all of the Federation. Because it gives it shows that not everyone within the Federation feels that Starfleet can help. Because they, exactly for those reasons, say they don't understand yeah. having their homes taken away. Because it is an idyllic society. And I love the episodes where the Federation kind of has to deal with that. Yeah, They have to realize that they don't 100% understand. So the way they handle the Maquis is interesting where they only engage with them when it becomes violent. But for the most part, they try to leave them alone and try to try to coexist. But that clash is really interesting. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Um, so what's your, what's your next episode? Well, maybe this would be a good time to actually move into Voyager. Um, my one is like, considering that a big part of the beginning of Voyager was about um, this Maquis ship and this Federation ship being sent across the galaxy. And then the two of them having to learn to work together in order to get their way back home. Um, but my episode actually has nothing to do with the Maquis. It comes from season six, episode 12, and it's called Blink of an Eye. Um, so... I watched Voyager um, periodically. It was like while it was on, it was like when it was on reruns uh, mm -hmm. on Spike Television. You know that it's like the oh, yeah. the television channel for men because we didn't have already yeah. television channels for men. That wasn't yes, a thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, but um, and so my memory of it is a little spotty. Um, but I have remembered this episode. It stuck with me for years. Um, and. 
its basic premise is actually similar to something that shows up in the Christopher Nolan movie Interstellar about a difference in time between a planet and the rest is like and uh, the rest of the uh, the galaxy. Yeah. Um, so Voyager is trying to find their way back home, but for some reason they periodically keep stopping at planets to explore. They can't help themselves. They can't help themselves. <laughs> and they stop at this one planet, and it's this weird-looking thing. It's got this funny subspace field around it. And when they go into orbit, they get trapped in this subspace field, and they realize that this field has actually changed time on the planet, so that for every second that takes place on Voyager a year takes place on the planet. Yeah. And with them trapped in orbit and now visible to the population below, they can effectively track and see how this civilization goes from a primitive, like a bronze age is a group of people all the way up to spacefaring individuals and how their presence, Voyager's presence has dramatically impacted the lives of these people. Because when they first show up, there's a religious ceremony taking place, and suddenly this star appears in the sky out of nowhere. Yeah. And from that, it captures the imaginations of the people, and they start moving towards, as, they, as hundreds of years go on, they develop like hot weather balloon like, uh, technology to be able to try and rise up and send messages to this thing. They start, as they go forward, they start developing telescopes to be able to see, and they can see that it's some sort of spaceship. Yeah. When they see that it's a spaceship, they then like commercialize it and make children's toys called yeah. the face friends about yeah. this thing. And it like, it captures yeah, the imagination. Like the, sky, the sky castle. And exactly. Yeah. It's like, and then it ends up like inf- influencing like generations of children who want to be astronauts and want to go yeah. up and explore this thing is like, and all the while Voyager's stuck up there trying to figure out how the heck to get out of this. And, and they're causing pl- damage to the planet. Yeah. So they're causing earthquakes, which exactly. they don't realize how much later, but they're basically causing an instability, which also affects this culture because the, all of their evolution is built around making sure they have uh, skyscrapers and buildings that won't fall easily. Yeah. Like they're really re-instructured and reinforced because their planet won't stop shaking. Yeah. And so then this eventually leads to violence where the people on the the planet think okay if this thing is causing the seismic tremors we need to get rid of it and so they start shooting at is like uh voyager and at first it's like oh who cares there's a primitive it's like a it's like a culture but as years and it's like hundreds of years go by for these people and it's only hundreds of seconds for um for voyager you then have now way more advanced weapons steadily being shot up at voyager and it's now becoming dangerous but eventually, an astronaut from the surface is able to make their way up to Voyager and become a liaison between the two sides. Yeah. And then Eve is like, eventually, this population that they witnessed go from Bronze Age all the way up to an advanced civilization that figures out how to help Voyager escape orbit and kind of transcends even this, like these, this supposed advanced Federation ship. And um, it's a really cool episode for a lot of reasons. It's a cool sci-fi concept. There's some really nice emotional moments, especially when the astronaut from down below actually learns what Voyager is and is kind of able to reconcile his entire people's fascination with this thing, with the knowledge of these people are friendly. They didn't mean to do what they were doing. And they're on our side. There are people up yeah. here. And they, say, and they are indeed our, our space friends, as he was like always had the toys of as a kid. Yeah. 
But more than that, it is a really interesting look at how a society can be affected in ridiculous amounts by small things or not even necessarily small things, but a change, a sudden change of some sort and the ripple effects of that change as it moves yeah. forward. And, the, and the, the subtlety of just simply arriving at their planet causes so much to change. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a great episode for that to, to show if that tiny thing can happen, more, more communication and, and, and contact can cause a lot of changes and ripples for societies, which is why you have to be careful as to what exactly you do when you meet a different culture. Or in this case, you go to a different planet and meet a whole different uh, different species. What I also like, and very quickly, because I know we got to get moving here, <laughs> yeah. but what I really like about this episode and a lot of episodes of Star Trek is the unity that seems to happen on a lot of other planets that's not Earth. Mm. So Earth, we've we've gone through all the world wars and even in Star Trek, there ends up being a third one before they even get out of kind of our modern day. Um, yet other planets often are a little bit more united. Like there's lots that aren't, but, but there's, it's interesting to go to planets that are mainly united. And these factions only form on this planet because they all have disagreements as to what to do about Voyager, what yeah. to do about this star, about this ship. And I always found that very fascinating as well. That like, our idea of this separation of race on our own planet doesn't exist in other, in other species, which I, I always found to be very interesting as well. Um, my next episode is um, also from Deep Space Nine, um, and saving my two TNG ones for last. Um, but uh, I, this one, again, I'm going to pivot away and talk about a completely different issue. And this one deals a lot with post-traumatic stress syndrome and uh and suicide mm. so this is an episode called hard time it's a deep space nine episode that happened relatively in the middle of their series like i found deep space nine really got going seasons kind of three three to six yeah very similar to, to tng yeah we're th but, but i mean three to six of tng we'll talk about it at a, another date but they're just brilliant oh yeah um deep space nine um this this again going along with the they were a little bit more inclined to deal with with tougher and harder issues than even next generation was so in this episode uh, miles o'brien who you also know from star trek the next generation he came over to deep space nine has been kidnapped captured by a society that believe he committed a crime and their idea of punishment is for him to live out in his mind only the rest of his life in prison. So it takes about an hour. They connect this thing. And in his mind, he lives out an entire lifetime in one hour. And then he's returned to his people. And in that lifetime, he's in a prison. Thank you for listening one to the other person, Sleep in Society uh, podcast. Available on RuhiSleep.ca. Don't forget to follow us on social media at RuhiSleep on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you for listening. What's interesting about this episode is he can't live with himself for the things that he thinks he did. He thinks he killed his uh, cellmate in in this episode. Again, this is all in his mind, but again, for him, it's real. What exists in his mind for him is as real as the reality is. So he's trying to deal with it, and he just cannot acclimate back to life on the space station, where again, it's like we talked about, it's high society as far as we're 
concerned. It's, yeah. it's a utopia is Starfleet. And he's so used to roughing it and so used to, to living by his instincts that he has a, such a hard time coming back that a bunch of things happen. He becomes very complacent and, and almost he gets into a huge argument at home. He has a young daughter. He almost strikes his daughter. He doesn't. But because of that, he can't even live with himself. He, he runs off um, and is found by uh, the doctor in a, in basically with a phaser set to maximum to his throat being like, he's going to, he's going to you know commit suicide. The doctor talks him out of it. They have a big conversation. They discuss all the things that he was refusing to speak about. They talk about the trauma. And the, for the first time in the entire episode, the doctor does the smartest thing that you could do and doesn't talk to him like it's fake. Mm. He talks to him like these are real feelings that it really happened. And he discusses what, you know, what the, the chief is feeling. And it shows you a couple things. One, the power that that therapy can have, the power that talking can have to to let things off people's chests and to discuss feelings, but also the power of the mind. That just because these things all happened in in O'Brien's head doesn't mean that it's not real to him. And you sometimes you have to sit and you have to listen to what someone's feeling and you have to let them talk it out. Or, or bad things will happen. So the end of the episode, he does not uh, take his own life. Uh, the doctor kind of sets him up with a, a, you know, a therapy to talk to someone on a consistent basis to try to work through these feelings. So as an advocacy for, for talking, as an advocacy for, for sharing your feelings and not being afraid to, to feel vulnerable in a moment, and that it's not a weakness to feel sad and to feel traumatized and to feel upset and then often these feelings are from something there's a there's an inner meaning or there's an inner thing that you must tackle this episode does a great job of you know the crew kind of knowing thinking oh you know it, it was fake it wasn't real he'll get over it but the doctor eventually recognizing no that's not the right tactic we have to let him accept these feelings and emotions and work with him yeah yeah, that's yeah. it is amazing to see how we're so as a like society trained to respond like positively, well I shouldn't say positively, but with sympathy to physical pain. Like physical mm-hmm. pain when we see someone in physical pain or where me things like, oh, like that's that's terrible. I hope you're okay. It's like you have this ailment, you it's like you cut yourself, all those sort of things. We have a much harder time empathizing with people who are undergoing some sort of mental trauma simply because yeah. we can't see the hurt. And so yeah. it's like, it's so simple in our own heads, like, just stop doing that. Just don't feel this way. Yeah. Um, and it's amazing how, like, how similar mental pain is to physical pain in the way that when you're in it, there's no way that you can, it's like, sometimes you can't see it out. It's just, yeah. it's all you can think about. And it's- Yeah, and I think Star Trek does a great job, especially in this episode, but elsewhere as well of, of again, I there's some things that I don't, like to to say but i'm going to use the word normal here because to me it normalized it as a kid yeah it normalized talking about your feelings it normalized that mental pain can be as powerful as physical pain it normalized again it, it normalizes as we've already brought up it normalized the fact that you know just because someone looks a little different than you doesn't mean they don't deserve the same respect that you do and yeah. that you know you should treat them right and you should really you know judge based upon actions not not just your own feelings towards something you know if someone does something bad to you okay that's different but to judge 
and to prejudge was is not something that Star Trek preaches. So yeah, I, I really like when episodes get into that and really show you, hey, this is this is okay. It's okay you're in pain. We're gonna work with you through this pain. We're going to address how you're feeling, and just because it's in your head doesn't mean it's not real. And I and I like that how the episode turns that way. Mm. Um, so yeah, we're, we're running out of time fast here, but go, go ahead, Tyler, give us your next episode. So my last two episodes are actually both, um, original series episodes. Um, because for me, like my, my childhood was dominated by the original series. It wasn't until later that I discovered the wonders that was TNG and then expanded else is like beyond. Um, but when thinking about original series episodes that had an impact, um, it's very easy to, to go to let that be your last battlefield, which is probably... The signature is like a original series episode on racism. Yeah. Um, and so I, I thought about doing that one for a long time it like because it was the obvious one to do. And it was once again, one of those situations where the crew would come in and they see these people who are it's like they are mono. It's like dichromatic. So they have their left side is, is like is white and their right side yeah. is black or inverse is like um and then this change is like of depending on which side of your face is white and which side of your face is black led to a division of race that created a huge conflict um and then this crew gets to come in and look at and say like can you believe that this is it look at it's like they're the same pretty much and we we as an audience understand oh they're talking about the like the actual racial tension that was very big at the time when this show was coming out and as we said still continues to rage to this very day um but once again, it's putting the crew in this sense of like superiority. So an episode that I actually like a little bit more about this kind of like dealing with racism or specifically like just fear of the unknown, fear of the other is a episode called Devil in the Dark. It's yeah. um, season one, episode 25, and it deals with this monster that's supposedly like murdering people in a mine and the Enterprise is brought in effectively to kill it. And throughout the episode, there are hints given that this thing isn't a monster. Um, it's actually a sentient being who is protecting its home is like from these invading is like uh, miners. Yeah. Um, but even Kirk is absolutely adamant. This thing needs to die. It's too dangerous. It's like, and when they see it, it's this like weird mass of flesh and rock and corrosive acid and it just looks the least like them you could look at something exactly it looks nothing like a human being is like and so unlike uh let that be your last battlefield where the crew is going you see where is like we're they're all the same is like it's trying to bring itself to the level of people who are racist and we're looking it's like no we're nothing alike and saying like even if you think we're nothing alike there is still is like a person there there is still an entity a sentience a thing that feels and moves and wants is like uh for the it's like betterment for its own kind um and is willing and able to work with you is like and uh it's like kind of play off of your differences and perhaps make something stronger out of that union um so that would be the what was like one i'd go for devil in the dark as a kind of more eccentrically sci-fi look at fear of the unknown and of the other yeah, and it, it helps to look at something, like you're saying, that, that looks nothing like us because you, even as an audience member watching that episode, my, my first reaction is, well, yeah, but he's ki- they're killing people. Yeah. It's killing people. But you start thinking about it going, well, 
to to this species, this is just what they look like. Yeah. This is the way they evolved. Yeah. You know, they are a person in you know the way way you know you define you know humanity or they they talk about like they talk about like what makes a species sentient. It's sentient regardless of what it looks like. Yeah. And I and I love that the episode does that. It's a real that's a really good pull. Yeah, and it's especially nice to see like because Spock does a mind meld with it and you can see like it can't really communicate like with them in the way that they can but when they actually get inside and see its mind you can see that this thing has all the same feelings and the reason why it's doing all this is because when the miners came down they literally killed thousands of their young these small silicon nodules that they thought were just rocks yeah and so like when we're saying like yeah it's killing people it's like yeah but we've killed thousands of it like of it um it's like without even knowing it and, that and how of, would we react if the situation was reversed? Exactly. Yeah. Um, and so it's a it's a it's a great episode. It's obviously very campy because it's the original is like a series, but still, it's kind of fun to see the what they were able to do with the effects that they had at the time. Yeah, and the original series does do a very good job of of making those points, even even with the limitations they had budgetarily, because some of the best moments of the original series is is those well-written things that make you kind of forget about that. I always say when reviewing movies, I wouldn't nitpick if I was entertained. Yeah. And yeah. I don't think you nitpick as much with the original series because you're so entertained by what's going on. Agreed. Um, okay, so my my second last episode is from the next generation. It's an episode called The Outcast. Um, the Outcast is from season number four, I think. Five, season five. Um, so it's season five episode, The Outcast. Uh, the Enterprise goes to a planet of relatively um, isolated, uh, relatively isolated species. Um, they are helping them um, in region of space with a couple anomalies and issues. Um, and Riker starts to become close to one of them. And we learn that they're actually an Andron. They don't have any gender specificity within their society so they do not have how we would recognize gender identities they don't have them they actually find those things to be unnatural so the difference um in society is kind of clear so as Riker's starting to get to know this one individual Riker is asked several questions that become you know somewhat uncomfortable for him to answer but you you learn that this society has no sense of like well what is the difference between male and female what is the difference between your genders? We don't we don't quite understand. This isn't part of our society. We actually feel that it's it's not the norm to have a gender identity. And what they realize soon, uh, Riker is the first to realize this, is there's a sub sort of sect of this society that do identify themselves as having gender. They don't feel they're sick um, as society tells them they are. They don't feel they're weak as society tells them they are. They don't feel there's something wrong with them as society tells them they are. They just feel this is who we are. We are born this way. Some of us feel we are gendered in certain ways. And it's a very, very unique episode because, again, it kind of does two things. It put points a finger at our society way back in the 1990s about gender identity mm. um, and talks about how we treat people who we feel, we feel are different. Because the society feels, oh, you know, and I think everyone knows where I'm going with this. This society in general is just like, oh, if you identify with a gender, there's something wrong with you. You're sick. 
we need to help you. We need to rehabilitate you. Um, and this society, they're basically afraid for their lives if people find out that they they feel they have gender. So Riker actually ends up falling for for this individual, and they they want to start a relationship, and they're found out by their society, kidnapped. There's a trial. There's a very very passionate trial scene and Riker is put in a scenario where he doesn't know what to do. The ship's going to leave. It's against the prime directive to interfere, but he doesn't want this individual to be sentenced to a life where they get rehabilitated and it changes who they are. So Riker without really the permission of his captain, but we'll talk about that a little bit at the end. <laughs> uh, he, he goes down with Worf and tries to kidnap this individual and bring them back to the enterprise, but it's too late. They've already gone through the psychotherapy they've already uh, changed and they basically say no like I, I I was sick and my society has now fixed me and the episode basically ends with them leaving um, and so it's an interesting prime directive episode but it also really starts to tackle um, gender identity and the way we treat people um, who identify differently than the way we're comfortable with to be frank yeah, I, I, was like, I was thinking of that episode, actually. I, it's like, I almost put it on. As like, and I think you're right that it's just, it's so ahead of its time. Um, yeah. This isn't to be said that, like, there weren't people who were aware of the transgender issues that were going on at the time. Like, uh, some of the best, like, um, Par was it uh, Paris is Burning? Is that, or Burning? I can't remember. There's, like, documentary on, like, the uh, a lot of the shows that were going on in New York, stuff like that. Those, like, there was definitely a movement in place at the moment, but it was so far outside of the mainstream. Um, Absolutely. Oh, I totally agree with yeah. you. I, I think that, yeah, that, that not to say that it did, it's, it hasn't been part of our society for a long time. It's just the yeah. mainstream hadn't really hit when this episode came out. Yeah. And no you know, one would be willing to touch it with like a nine and a half foot pole. And so oh, it's impressive. Sure that star trek took a, a swing at it they they obviously didn't do they couldn't go as far as they wanted like obviously the supposedly androgynous person that Riker is attracted to is still coded he's like female for the audience yeah. so they can understand why he'd be attracted all those sort of things as like, yeah. but still for the time is like and for is like and what they were going for in terms of the sci-fi stuff it brought up a lot of issues that even shows today still have a hard time tackling yeah, and they, I mean, they, you have to make it for a mainstream audience. So you have to put um, the character that you're meeting to a gender that we would understand at the time, or at least that the, the mainstream, uh, the mainstream audience would understand. Mm. So I understand why they, they would do that. You're right. They probably didn't go as far as it wanted to. Um, and even later in Star Trek, when, when they sort of tackle gender in different ways, introducing species with, with, I mean, some species, five or six gender identities, yeah. um, they go a little bit further. But for the time, I think this was a pretty big step. Yes. And I think still there's things you can show people. I always think about Star Trek as if I were to want to show my child something, like if I ever have a kid and I want to show them something and teach them something, would I, where would I pull from? I pull from these types of episodes of Star Trek. Yeah. Because at the core, does it get everything correct? No. Does it always use the right terminology? No, because it was written no. in the 1990s. But it, the core message is a good one. Yeah. is a positive one. Yeah. And the TNG, as it, uh, the reason why I love it so much and probably more than the original series is it because it's able to take the aspirations of the original series and actually like see it through. 
um, specifically when it comes to stuff like gender, where like the original series was trying to do stuff on gender equality, but was still very much handicapped by its own 1960s aesthetic. So like, all yeah, there are women and men in here, but you know, all the women have to wear really, really short skirts around and yeah. stuff like that. TNG actually put their money where their mouth is and tried to like make a version of the society was like where there was something like uh, approaching gender equality and more importantly than that just overall is like equity and equality for all members of society regardless of how they identify and i think as the series went along and as each star trek series went along it got it got better and better and you could you could be a little bolder because you've you've ingrained yourself and star trek became a big enough of the name that you can take more risks yeah um, so yeah, we, we can't forget, yeah, I, I'm glad you brought that up. We cannot forget that Star Trek was still created in a time where what the studio says goes, yeah. what the networks say go, and they're risk adverse. So you're absolutely right. I'm glad you brought that up. Um, it's, it's too bad that that didn't make it into the CFRC version of this episode as we're now over <laughs> we're just on the podcast audience, but hopefully people will have checked out this portion of it because I think you bring up a really good point and, and it is important to know context is important. Mm. And I think that sometimes we're too quick to judge on things in the past where it was like, well, look at the situation that they were in. And I think they did the best they could and got better as they went along. So tell us your final uh, episode. So my final episode also comes from the original series. And it's funny because uh, back in the old days, was like I saw the original series on VHS tapes. And each tape that I had had two episodes per tape. And <laughs> my favorite episode as a ever of Star Trek was called The Doomsday Machine. It was about this big machine that destroyed things and whatnot. Oh, and it's, it's a great episode. A great episode. Um, <laughs> But before that episode, because it was the second episode on this VHS tape, there was an episode called Private Little War um, that I didn't really like a lot. But, you know, I had to get through it in order to watch the Doomsday Machine. So I watched it a ton. Back in in the day when you just had to watch that VHS through. Exactly. Like, you know, I was like, what was I going to do? Fast forward through it and miss some of the Doomsday Machine? Not on your life. No, no. no. Absolutely not. (laughs) So instead, I would watch Private Little War and I would kind of sit through and be like, all right, whatever. Um, It wasn't until much later that I kind of realized that this episode, which was uh, episode 19 of season two, was about uh, like the neo-colonialism of the Cold War. Um, it was a series, it was an episode that took place once again on a, it was a primitive planet. You had two different villages, um, that were usually peaceful, but then when the enterprise shows up, they discovered that somehow one of the two villages has developed rifle flintlocks, um, way ahead of when they is like, expected and is now slaughtering the other side. And they're very confused by this until they realize that the Klingons have supplied this other village with the flintlocks. And so Kirk is determined that he's going to supply this other side with flintlocks in order to create a balance of power. And then McCoy brings up what happens if the Klingons provide this weapon. He's like, then we keep increasing the armament and we keep going forward. And this is it pretty much is like um, a kind of rosy version of U.S. foreign policy back in the 1960s and 70s and 80s. When the Soviet Union and America would go in to other nations, it's like uh, for com- with competing interests and basically supply different sides with weapons yeah. in order to fight their Cold War for them in the open. Um, and it was 
is like obviously Star Trek is trying to put it this place like oh yeah the Federation is just trying to like keep the balance of power is like um sure but is like it was very damning of this kind of idea of you're introducing what they called snakes into the Garden of Eden you're bringing these weapons this destruction your problems and you're fe- like you're hoisting it onto these other people yeah um it was really like if you read it in a certain way it was like very kind of like revolutionary in terms of like pointing the finger specifically at the u.s government and at the soviet government and saying this is what you're doing stop it yeah yeah no and i that's it's very interesting because um often in star trek you'll have two of your characters that you get to know bring up the opposite side of the argument and they're kind of discussing it not yeah. arguing, but discussing it. And you both love these characters and it, it does make you second guess and question things. Yeah. Cause yeah. you know, n- naturally, you know, the captain of the ship, Oh yeah. He's supplying these things. We're on that side. We get it. We get what's going on. But then someone else you trust questions it. Yeah. And it makes you question it. And I, I love when Star Trek does that. Oh yeah. It's like, and it's always like, the, it's, you can always trust good old D force Kelly as McCoy, the doctor to be able to provide the, the antithesis to whatever Kirk is saying. Yes. <laughs> well, that's the thing. It's interesting how, how bones would always do that. And, and yet Spock would always do that too. And yeah. they didn't get along that well, or at least sort of kind of like they were always at, they were always sort of bickering at each other. Playful but enemies. Spock and bones were kind of that, that other side of the coin for Kirk. Yeah. Which is interesting that they're, they both provided that, but, but had such, I don't know, sometimes disdain for each other. Yeah. Well, it was supposed to be like pure logic versus pure emotion. And then the person in the middle trying to kind of rectify the two. And that's humanity. That's what made the three of them so powerful is like a, 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 a characters to follow around. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's, a big reason why some of the J.J. Abrams movies kind of fail a little bit when it comes to that trifecta, because Kirk has become pure emotion, Spock has become pure logic, and then McCoy is just kind of there in the background being Carl Urban. Yeah, yeah. Doing no, a great for, job well, at that, and, don't and get me they wrong. Tried, they tried with O'Hara to mm-hmm. be that third piece I found in the J.J. Abrams movies. Like, yep. they tried to make her kind of the third because of her relationship with Spock, mm-hmm. but I don't think it really quite worked. Yeah, it wasn't quite as neat as the original series was. And um, so, yeah, so that was that's my last pick. Private Little War. Yeah, that's a great episode. Yeah, I, I'm glad because you you've now brought up I had, as we've mentioned, I had a short list of ones that didn't make it in. Yeah. And a lot of my original series were there. And now you've brought some of those up. So I'm glad you did that. Um, yeah, my last episode is is probably um, Probably one that, again, you or I would expect would be on this list, but I felt considering where um, where Star Trek is now, I had to bring this episode up. Hmm. So season two, Measure of a Man, um, Star Trek The Next Generation. This show became the basis for the Star Trek Picard series. Um, it is... Um, an episode where uh, the the Enterprise arrives at a space station. We're introduced to Bruce Maddox, who is a scientist who's studying kind of the Noonien Soon uh, android creation that is Data, trying to recreate, um, uh, trying to recreate Data 
in multitudes of Starfleet. Every starship can have a, a data. Uh, he wants to disassemble data to figure out how he works um, and basically wants the Federation to order data to do it because he feels the data is a property of the Federation. Data doesn't want to go, obviously, for various reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, and it creates a, a basically they need to have a trial to decide is data a sentient being who has the right to choose and can refuse to participate uh, in this experiment. And it's interesting because in this episode, uh, Captain Picard is given the, the role of defending data and for various strange reasons, it's Commander Riker who has to prosecute the case and has to basically prove that uh, data is in fact um, uh, a, a piece of a material, an object. Um, the episode gets into obviously a lot of, of really good things about what makes a sentient being a sentient being. But the most important moment is when after, after Riker's made his kind of opening statements and he, he's apparently done a very good job of proving that data is in fact just a machine, Picard goes to 10 forward as he often does to try to think um, about what to do. And he is talking to Guinan, who is really the, probably the best counselor on, on the enterprise. Yes. Despite uh, the, despite them having a dedicated counselor. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Guinan often gives the best advice. Guinan smartly points out um, really through, through almost reverse psychology, reverse psychology. Yeah. Where she <laughs> talks about, the fact that, well, wouldn't it be great? We'd have a bunch of datas who could do missions that are are uh, more dangerous that we don't want to send humans into. They could operate in areas that humans don't. And Picard goes, well, you're talking about slavery. You're talking about a, a group of people that will do our bidding that don't have the same rights as we do. And I even think she says, I think that's a little harsh to him. And he's like, he just goes off. He's like, that's not a little harsh. That's exactly what we're talking about. And she gives him what he needed. Yep. The thing that he wasn't connecting to is we've had this issue happen in our society before. If we create more datas without knowing what, as a society, we feel about them, we're creating slaves mm. and basically ends up winning, uh, winning the trial. Now, what was great about this episode is kind of that ending, yeah. that sense of they got to figure this out. They have to give data rights. And before they allow Bruce Maddox to create a, a society of datas, they they need as a society to figure out what that means. Uh, then Captain Picard just, uh, you know, I'm sorry, this not Captain Picard. The show Picard completely poo-pooed all that yeah. by creating a bunch of mindless androids that eventually, uh, uh, eventually a bunch of stuff happens but but there's scenes where they're talking to them as if they're second class citizens yeah um and kind of just goes the opposite they go the way that picard was afraid they were gonna go um so the episode really to me is another one where i i would show people this to show like this is this is how we we treat people this is this is um a, a really good metaphor for how we've treated people who are different, how we've made it get so easy to look at someone and say, you mean less than this other person. Um, and I think this episode does a really good job of pointing that out. 
Yeah, I completely agree. I think it is once again a standout from like the first two seasons, and uh, really one of those episodes that I, I feel the showrunners could point to and say, like, you see, this is where we're going. This is what yeah. we're gonna do. Um, and it's great because they do they have the heady concepts, the big sci-fi ideas. They relate them back to like allegories in our own lives and our own societies. But then they also leave room for the cool society moments. I mean, the cool character moments between Guinan and Picard, between Riker and Data at the end, when Riker feels really guilty that he was forced to yeah. act as his prosecution. And Data kind of logically is like uh, plays it out that like, yeah, well, you had to. You had no choice. It's a, I love that scene yeah. because Data says to him that like you, I think he says something like you were willing to be uncomfortable in order to save my life. Exactly. Because that's what he had to do. You, you, you had to prosecute me. You didn't want to. So you were willing to be uncomfortable in order to, to keep me from being disassembled anyway. Yeah. And Data says to him like, that's something I'll never forget. Yeah. And I think that that's such an interesting, powerful way to look at it because yeah, Riker was put in an awful position, but if he didn't try his best, that's basically why he was prosecutor. They said, okay, well, we'll just, we'll find for Maddox and, and he goes away. Yeah. So he had to try his absolute best in order to give Picard a chance to beat him. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, uh, and you're right, it is, unfortunately, time will show that it was the kernel that lodged itself in Kurtzman's mind that somehow became the show Picard and yeah. uh, somehow managed to systematically undo all the goodwill that that, like, that episode did. But if you push that all aside, it's like selectively blind yourself to what the future brings. Um, the episode still stands on its own very well. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Um, and I think the biggest takeaway from from all these episodes that we're talking about is star trek has the power to point out these issues and these problems in our in the way we treat each other the way we we look at our society in ways that are unique and different sometimes it goes over people's heads sometimes it's a little too high concept but i think if you have discussions about it if you study Star Trek, you can you can break these things down and have discussions that will point out to go like, well, why? Because even as a as a kid, you start going, why would you treat data like that? Yeah. We like all love data. <laughs> yeah, we love data. Why would you do that? And then you you I think what happens is you go into society with that in mind. Why would you treat this person this way? Yeah. Why would you treat this like if it's not right to treat data this way, then it's not right to treat anybody this way. Yeah, you, and you I, effectively and Trojan think, horse empathy into a person when you use like with the yeah, and sometimes it's necessary, don't you think? Oh yeah. It's like well, especially as a child. Yeah. When people are kids, like, you know, we we've all been kids. It's selfish little <laughs> it's like we don't of course. Yeah, it's like you're it's all you, it's all about your inner world. And yeah. um you need examples to look to of like this is why you should care about other people. You have to teach children thing and things and people seem to, for some reason, forget that. I don't know why. Yeah. And maybe it's simply the fact that I, you know, I was lucky I had good parents. Yeah. And I know that that's, for some people, that's, that's why they turn out as well as they do. And some people don't have great parents and still turn out very well. Mm -hmm. But there's just something in our society we sometimes miss where you have to teach children things, including yeah. to be racist. Yeah. So why can't you do the opposite? Why can't you, from the very beginning, treat them to not judge people in this way? And you're absolutely right. It's Trojan horsing in a way, but it's sometimes it's necessary. Yeah. 
Well, that brings us to the end of this episode. We did. We went over our time. So there you go, Tyler. Bingo card achieved. Woot. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, everyone, for listening. We, we do hope you enjoyed uh, hearing us ramble about Star Trek. There will be more Star Trek to come in the future. We promise you. Um, but next week we'll be back uh, as, as Taylor returns um, from, from her honeymoon. So thank you very much, everybody, uh, for, for joining us today. And thank you, Tyler for coming back and talking Star Trek with me. Always a pleasure. Thank you very much. And uh, we'll talk to everyone later. And as Taylor likes to say, go see some movies. Thank you for listening to the Screening in Kingston podcast, recorded at CFRC at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario. Queen's University sits on the traditional lands of the Haudenosaunee and Anishabi peoples. We would like to thank the Faculty of Engineering and Applied Sciences and the CFRC Podcast Network.